Like human reason cannot function that way. Only a total, like a maniac like Spinoza could actually <laughs> do without teleology in that way. left of philosophy. I'm Lillian. Here with me today is Gil. Hi Lillian. Will. Yo, what's up? And Owen. Hey. So today we start a series that we're going to do here on what's left of philosophy called What is Dialectics? And I'm going to say something about why we want to do this. We're going to do a multi-part investigation with that is basically asking that question. And we're going to start with Kant. And so do you guys know that meme with the little chihuahua dog with like the big glasses? You know? <laughs> I don't think I've Have you seen it? There, it's like a, it's a little chihuahua dog and he has like these big glasses and his nose is kind of looking up in the air like I'm really small and smart right now. Um, that was like me this morning putting on my like Kant brain. I was like I sat, I sat down at my that table is- and I was like. Like, let's, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> let's, let's go. go. That's so adorable. Um, I love it. <laughs> yeah, just like settling into thinking, thinking like a real philosopher today. Um, so we read um, some passages from the Critique of Pure Reason on what's called the Transcendental Dialectic. And um, before we talk about Kant, why dialectics? There are some reasons for this. First of all, it's confusing as hell. Second of all, um, we don't think anyone really knows what it means, you included, if you're listening. And then second, and including ourselves. And then um, (laughs) thirdly, there's a bunch of important stuff going on with this concept. So if, you know, you're in a seminar or you're at a meeting and somebody starts like putting their fingers up and doing this little like flipping motion and they're like, oh, it's dialectical. Like normally, (laughs) like what they're talking about is that like these things are related, you know? Um, Mm. But like philosophers tend to mean something different. And it's a way of talking about the philosophy of history. It's Um, articulating a relationship between human reason and therefore political subjects in driving history, whether towards its own end or some other end. Um, And and then it's broadly a way of articulating the dynamics of social change. And Kant doesn't do all of this, but the reason we're starting with Kant is that Kant gives us a critique, as the title of the book suggests, of pure reason, um, what reason wants, what it's what it does through its own effort, its effects on the world around it, and importantly, um, against what he'll call sort of like dogmatic idealists or rationalists, dogmatic metaphysics. He thinks that you can't get rid of human inclination and interests and propensities within human reason. Um, there are limits to what it can know, but that doesn't mean importantly that we can't transcend like immediate sensible experiences or perceptions. And I think Owen was saying before the show that like Kant is really excited about human freedom and like God and the totality of the universe. And he wants to talk about how we can 
know those things or have access to those things or, or not and what our relationship with them is. And I think the important takeaway point is that for Kant, reason is a movement of some kind and he doesn't articulate the philosophy of history that would come with Hegel, but he's taking us in that direction. And Hegel, which we'll do our next episode on, um, tells us that reason has a history, and he sets the stage for thinking about history philosophically. And so that's mm -hmm. why we're starting with Kant. And so we're not going to talk about Hegel now. We'll talk about Hegel later. But that's where we're going with all of this. And hopefully we can clarify to ourselves and to our listeners some various ways of interpreting the concept of dialectics and, um, importantly, whether or not it's worth salvaging. And mm. this was a longer introduction than usual, but I just wanted to set the stage for people. And so I'll throw it over to the rest of the group. What do you think Kant's intervention is with the concept of dialectics? What does he do that is going to facilitate us doing other things and then, like, where do you situate him in the sort of history of this concept? I just want to say I really appreciate that we're doing this because uh, I'm not going to call myself out, but I think some people use dialectic to mean if you think I'm wrong, you're going to be you're going to find out eventually I'm right. You know, <laughs> if you think I mean this one thing, psych. I actually mean uh, the opposite, but also both those things too. But you just have to see it dialectically. <laughs> oh yeah, thinking dialectically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah there's like a. Um, it's it's shorthand. It's used as a concept in so many kind of like unhelpful ways. Like you said, Lillian, often it's just like these two things are related somehow. And it's like, wait, is that all we're saying? It's is it more than that? It's often like you said, you got that little hand motion like actually dialectics means like it's the other way around. It's the opposite of what you thought, something like this. Uh, what's weird is that like this concept gets articulated here in Kant, it's like, you know, half of the book is the so-called transcendental dialectic. And he doesn't mean that. He means something else, right? He's, uh, but, but it is like the concept that's going to get like picked up by like the later German idealist Hegel most specifically. And then there's this whole tradition of thinkers after Hegel, like Marx, like Engels, who take themselves to be dialecticians in a different kind of way. So I think it's like historically helpful to go back to the first critique and see like, wait, where, where did this, where'd this come from? Like, what, what, how did this arise in the first place? So like my first pass pitch for what I think's going on here is that Kant, and like you said, wants to draw limits to what we can know, right? He thinks that there are limits to human reason and understanding. And so to like the language that he uses for this is that there's understanding and then there's reason. An understanding is what happens when we like, you know, grasp things in our, in our experience, how the things appear for us. And then there's all kinds of things that we can say about that. But then there's this sort of, movement beyond that, right? So we've got these limits and I can say, for instance, that like, oh, this thing looks to me to be a certain kind of way. But I don't usually stop there. He thinks reason goes farther and says like, and that's the way the thing really is. And so there's this like movement beyond the legitimate boundaries of what we can actually claim to know. And importantly for Kant, he doesn't think that just like, that that's just fucking up, that that's just a mistake. He thinks that like reason kind of has to go in this direction. It kind of has to go farther than it can actually legitimately talk about things it's a sort of like you said it's a movement yeah i mean for me like the the con really opened up for me when i realized like why it was a critique of pure reason and not a critique of the understanding because i feel like the the con that a lot of us receive and at least in in anglo in the anglo-american world is a very like epistemological Kant that is 
interested especially in the transcendental analytic, right? Which is the first the first kind of roughly a half of the of the first critique in which what is at stake is knowledge of the natural world and the conditions of possibility of experience and above all the possibility of making um, synthetic a priori propositions, right? Which is a technical way of saying logically coherent, true statements about the world, about actual things in experience, mm -hmm. right? But then I realized that those kind of questions that apply to the natural world are, you know, once you read the transcendental dialectic, you realize that like the questions that really animate him, like Lillian was saying, right, are not just like questions, epistemological questions about knowledge of, of the natural world, but like much bigger, more perilous, but also more exciting questions about the nature of human freedom, right? About, about you know, the nature of the universe, about God, uh, about teleology. And in fact, for Kant, like you were saying, Gil, right, the mind can't help but go there. It is, it, it is a necessity of the way that our cognition works that, you know, once we start thinking about causes, cause and effect, we want to ask about first causes. We want to ask about the totality of all causal conditions, right? Our, our mind can't help but, but push in those directions. And yet, it's, we're not really equipped or allowed for Kant, right, to be able to answer those questions the same way we can mm -hmm. answer questions about the natural world, right, about why something fell right. the way it did or what velocity. And so that's really what's really exciting. And he kind of gives us permission to, to not just to, you know, obsess over the use of our understanding and that kind of limited notion of cognition, but to push out and to ask metaphysical questions you know, but to do it in a way that has a certain amount of constraints on it, so it doesn't just become wild speculation about whatever it is that might be out there in the universe. Um, so that I don't know. That's no matter what the later German idealists might make you think, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, it's right. not wild yeah. speculation. Yeah, the, yeah. I was. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm glad you said that last part because you. Know, Again, you know, my my comp might be a bit rusty, but you know, I found myself as the resident crypto Kantian, but even listening to you, Owen, I found myself thinking, yo, I mean, I I like this dude. But then I started thinking, <laughs> but I don't remember comp being the permissive guy. I don't remember right. him, you know, well, being like you know, he's more per go in and let have. And so I, I was really animated by that. He's more permissive than the skeptic. Okay. Say 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 more about what you mean there. He's more permissive than the skeptic, right? Because the skeptic wants to shut down, right, those questions and say that they they have no legitimacy whatsoever, right? There's no point of the skeptic wants to say that talking about God, well, you don't have any experience of God. And so you mm. can't make like, you know, there's no point of um trying to make intelligible statements about something like God because you have no empirical experience of it, right? So mm -hmm. so I think if he does give us permission, you're right to, to pick up on that because it is a strange notion for Kant. But if he does, in, at least what felt to me like permission was like, okay, well, within a certain <laughs> set of constraints, right? And if you do it yep, rigorously, yep. right? And if you follow this kind of nascent dialectical mode of thinking that he's engaging in, then like, yes, not only should we, but we like have to think about these things that go beyond uh, ex experience. Does that make sense, Will? Oh, yeah. And maybe we could say a little bit more about what it means to say if you do this rigorously. Because, you know, what, what's ironic with how dialectic is thrown around is that it actually becomes distinctly unrigorous. Like, you know, yeah. the, these two things happen to be related and all of that. So for Con so uh, and maybe Gil, you, you can help out with this. So for Kant, what does rigor look like? And maybe if we use like a concrete example, perhaps, you know, uh, the antinomy of freedom, maybe that mm. would help to say a bit yeah. about, so what does it mean to proceed rigorously to, you know, to, to come to this knowledge of, of limits that, you know, we cannot help but go beyond? Yeah. One thing that I think is like 
may be helpful here is like, this is something that's going to get taken up by all the later like post-Kantian German idealists is that like, if you think of Kant as just doing like the negative part of the program, like, like Owen was saying, the like sort of like restrictive epistemological part of the program, then the, the picture we get is like, all right, so Kant's the guy who's going to draw a circle around what we can know. He's going to draw these limits. He's going to yeah. show us these boundaries. But like the sort of curious, paradoxical, kind of dialectical thing is that you can't draw a limit without already going beyond it, right, in a sense. Like this is the sort of like, like proto-dialectical uh, thing that's going to become more and more explicit with later thinkers like Hegel. Like I can't draw a boundary without sort of already surpassing it in a certain sense. And so like the, the, the example of freedom is a good one. I also think of like, you know, the antinomies about like the infinity of the world, right? Like I don't have experience of infinity, right? I only experience finite stuff. My experience is like bounded by these rules of space and time. Things only appear to me in a certain kind of way. But then when I start asking questions about, like you said, like, all right, so there are these things that happen in experience and they seem like they're conditioned. An event happens to me, that event was caused. So it was conditioned by that cause. And so understanding happens by relating a thing to its conditions, right? But then reason says, there must be a totality of all the conditions. I can think about the, the infinite chain of series of all of all possible conditions um, going all the way back infinitely in time. And then he's like, well, wait a minute. So was there a first cause or does it go back infinitely forever? Right? This is like the antinomy about like the infinity of the world. Is there a first cause or does it go back forever? And he's like, well, I can't experience either of those things. They both sort of make sense. I can argue for both of them, but they're directly in contradiction with each other. And so like he'll say the thing that's interesting about the antinomies is like, and it is like this sort of speculative metaphysical stuff. He's like, as long as you're on the attack on either side of the antinomy, you're gonna win, right? But as soon as you have to defend yourself from the opposite side, like the guy who says, no, there wasn't a first cause, it goes back forever. Like you kind of can't answer that objection. So the dialectic is this place where like contradictory statements both seem true. And sort of like the movement of reason is trying to hold those together at the same time. And rigor here looks like something like not falling prey to this trap where we think that it's gotta be one side or the other, right? Dialectics is about like holding two sides of a, of a contradiction together as true. I thought he had this like cool footnote on like the personality that was um, mm. helpful. So based on what Gil just said, so he talks about how human consciousness, this I that thinks, there's this question about whether or not it's, if it's just one substance, the same I over time, when I refer to mm -hmm. myself as like a thinking thing, then this isn't really, co it can't just be one substance because all of the other preconditions of the I throughout time kind of form into the I that's thinking of itself and reflecting on itself. And then as you're thinking about those previous conditions, you're always like propelling oneself into the future and becoming like a different I, like kind of this displacement mm. across time. And so there's this like, and yeah, this interesting reflection on the personality. So if there's this kind of classic problem and um, when philosophers think about human consciousness, like what is a person? Is it just, is it a narrative? Is it a, a set of concrete, you know, discrete features? Is it just like a composition of different attributes or whatever? And he tries to figure out like, it's, it's all of the, it's, it's none of those things. It's like this thing that keeps telling itself about itself. And then as it tries to explain itself, it becomes 
something new, but all of the things that used to be true about it are still present in all the whole personality and they're just mm. reconfiguring themselves as it propels itself into the future. And I was like, this is a really nice psychological moment for him. I feel like that's kind of, <laughs> kind of true. What, what, what's, what's interesting about this is, you know, if, if I'm following one, we see why dialectic can't be these two things are related to be, to use like the technical jargon because the understanding can do that. The understanding mm. can just like, mm -hmm. you know, look at the world and say, actually, I seem to see, you know, uh, a, a connections right there and then. Right. But what's striking is, I think, and perhaps, you know, this is because people are more thinking of someone like Hegel, who obviously we're not talking about here, is, you know, if re if the, the dialectic reason is trying to hold uh, these two contradictory things together, I think what a lot of people are expecting is, well, there has to be some sort of resolution, Right that there has to be some sort of answer forthcoming. But with Kant, with these questions like, you know, did the world begin with a first cause or if it's infinite, an answer isn't forthcoming, at least the way, right. the, the traditional way we'd understand answer, which is either yay to this, nay to that. But I don't think we'd say that there's no answer that's forthcoming. Is it really just we're supposed to end in the sort of like, wow, I guess I could cohe coherently argue for both positions. Isn't that wild? Or is there something <laughs> else that's supposed to come from that? Yeah. So like one way I think of thinking about this, because so the, the language that he'll use for this is that like we've got all these what he calls like transcendental ideas. Right. And this is the stuff that he's like worried or that he's worried about in the in the in the transcendental dialectic, these like dialectical inferences. And so the three there's three, right? There's three transcendental ideas. There's the soul, which as Lillian was saying, has all these like characteristics. It seems like it's simple. It seems like it's it's got a personality. Can I jump in? Could you say yeah. a little bit about what transcendental is? Because transcendental isn't like you're know, just like going beyond, right? Right. So transcendental seems to have to do with like conditions for like the language he uses is that it's about like the conditions for the possibility of stuff, right? And so we've got these, we have experience, experience seems to have this certain structure. What must be true in order for experience to happen and to look this way? And transcendental philosophy for Kant is about trying to figure out what has to be true about cognition in order for experience to, to, to look the way it does, to have these sort of shapes. And then so with the dialectic, what we get is these ideas that we seem to need to presuppose in order for this, these like judgments, these understandings to occur, but which can't be given an experience, and so we don't actually have knowledge of them, right? He thinks that knowledge is, knowledge is like, you know, connecting a dot between a concept and a thing in experience, right? And then when we start talking about something like the world as a whole, or God, or the soul, these are the three transcendental ideas, well, I never actually experienced that. That's not something that appears to me. That's not something that's ever given in my sensible intuition. So because it can't be given like that, I don't actually get to have knowledge about them, but they're transcendental ideas because like, they're there, reason engenders them, as conditions for the possibility of understanding. So like, let me give you just an example about this. Um, I think that like, the, the, the key here is the, the difference between conditioned and unconditional. Like, this is what he's always pointing to. When I you know, connect a, a dot, like you said, the understanding can like, look around and be like, oh, X thing caused Y, right? Like, 
I don't know, I, I, I saw something happen and it looked like a little causal relationship to me, right? The understanding connects that dot. Just a little one. And he says, just a little, just a little one, right? And he says, that's, that's only possible because we've got this idea of like a full set of causal connections, right? If we didn't have that full, that idea of a complete set of causes, we wouldn't be able to pick out like, a, like an instance, a finite version of it, right? And so like, if I didn't have this idea of like the whole of reality or, or like the totality of a series, then I wouldn't be able to think of, I wouldn't be able to recognize like a, a little series or like a little piece of the world. So it seems like this stuff is necessary in order for like finite cognition to be possible. But it's like this weird absolute posit that I actually don't know, I can't know in itself. So then when he talks about like, what are we supposed to do with this? Cause you're right, like the dialectic, uh, uh, the antinomy of the infinity of the world, he doesn't say, okay, thesis, the world's got a first cause, antithesis, there is no first cause, it goes on forever. And I looked at both of these claims and I figured it out, there's a first cause. Like, no, he doesn't say either of those things. He says, these are, these are like rationally consistent claims that you could make, but which we can't know is true or not because it exceeds the bounds of possible experience. And so he says, you know, that, that idea of like the totality of a series or the unconditioned or the absolute, he's like, our reason needs that in order to do the work that it does, even in the finite moments. But we have to kind of like prevent ourselves from saying that they're like actually true about the way things are. That we can't like we can't say the, the, the language that he uses is we can't use these principles constitutively to say that that's actually the way the world is or the thing in itself, but only regulatively, right? Like that we mm -hmm. kind of need that idea to get our sort of cognition off the ground, but we can't say that they're true or false, right? And so we get this kind of like again. Uh, this weird sort of double movement, this dialectical thing, like we're positing a limit, but to posit the limit is already to step beyond it, right? It's both of these things at once. Yeah, I think the regulative, the regulative principle idea, I'm not 100% sure, but this is one of the ways that I, I tend to read how Kant deals with this question of resolution of the dialectic, and which was um, your question, Will, is that part of it, I think, is that he is that he dissolves the those antinomies rather than resolving them. He uses the word dissolve mm. on some occasions, right? And so one of the ways I think he does that is to say that, well, maybe at a certain point here, we've reached the limit of what reason in its speculative powers can do. Like we can't, in its speculative powers, we can't get any more knowledge about, I don't know, let's say God or something, than where we've got to at this point of, of an antinomy. But reason has other functions than just generating knowledge. It also has a practical function. Right, like reason yeah, has this category called like practical reason, and it turns out that some of these ideas, which maybe we can't resolve in a satisfying way on the plane of knowledge, still have a really important function for us in how we live in our in our in our practices, right? And so they become uh, you get kind of regulative uh, regulative principles. So maybe we can't resolve the question of God decisively, or the question of the self or the soul, right, decisively uh, on the epistemological plane. But reason might, you know, still has a lot of work to do in, you know, these ideas still have a lot of work to do in guiding our practices uh, as human beings, even if we can't, they, you see what I mean? The problem kind of dissolves into practice rather than being resolved at the level of knowledge, right? Give an example. I was going to say, you say this is like a totally heterodox reading of Kant, but I'm like, I don't know, I feel like... Well, I don't think that's be... the heterodox, but... 
Okay, sorry. What was your example? Yeah, we'll, we'll, get, yeah. To we'll yeah. get to that. We'll get to that. It's I think coming. Like, Don't worry. The, the, yeah, it's coming, y'all. I mean, Owen's got a Owen's got a lot. The heterodox <laughs> is just a polemical way of stating that I actually don't think Kant gives a shit about knowledge. Compare relative Ooh. to other shit he cares <laughs> that about. That is heterodox. I take okay? it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's the heterodox part, right? Um, relative to other things that he cares about. Relative to, to practice. But the best example Freedom. for me of how that works is in, is in another book, the Critique of Judgment, in the trans in the dialectic, uh, in that book, right? And in that book, what's at stake is the idea of teleology, and it's the same thing replayed in a certain way, right? Like, no, we cannot. What's teleology? Teleology is for- the idea that all things tend that they tend toward a specific end, right? And that the progression okay. of, and specifically in the context of that book, like the idea that history is teleological, that it that it's that it's okay. tending towards ineluctably with some kind of necessity towards some particular goal or end end or, or purpose right and so cool. kant doesn't think we're allowed to make judgments about the teleology of history or something in the same way we could make judgments about the cause and effect between two objects right? that's a that is taking us to a speculative uh, area that is you know dangerous if we're making knowledge claims about that and yet he says right he dissolves the problem in a certain way like the idea that to go back to the dialectical issue that on one hand we want to say things happen for a reason. They're heading in a certain direction, right? Things are going to work out. And on the other hand, like we also have very good reasons to say that, well, how the fuck can we ever prove that, right? Like that's not a a provable thing. But the way it gets resolved is that he says, well, listen, the idea of teleology is still really useful because nobody can act or do anything in the world if they don't believe that somehow it might have an actual effect in that world. And if the world is Mm. not heading somewhere that is broadly, I don't know, somewhere something it's not heading in a direction that we might be able to call progress nobody's going to try to make progress like we almost need the idea of teleology we need the idea of Mm. progress even if we can't kind of prove it on the plane of knowledge we need to maintain that idea as a practical regulative principle of our actions that makes sense right it's like you need nobody's going to go into the world and be like well this is impossible but i'm going to try it anyways no we (laughs) we have to believe it's possible and teleology gives us that possibility that was really helpful for me because it seems like you, uh, let me test this answer. So the answer you get from the dialectic and Kant is not resolving this question in the, as Owen said, in the realm of knowledge of yay or nay, but the answer you get is, you know, seeing and revealing what reason cannot do without. Does, it, mm-hmm. does yeah. that sound, a good way sound about right? Yes. Uh-huh. That you yeah. actually get clear on what reason cannot get rid of, even if reason can't furnish the uh, the answer. So it's a, mm-hmm. it, it's a, a, you know, in some ways I think he puts it, it's an illusion that no matter what, we're not going to be able to get rid of the illusion. By illusion, I think he means very specifically the fact that you can't actually know it. So it right. is, you know, it is a kind of a appearance that one can't do without, but at least you're no longer duped by it. You're no yeah. longer not knowing what it is that you are doing. I feel like this is very helpful because this is, this is the part that I, I've always liked about Kant. So, the, so we have these concepts that, and just to you know, make it clear that I think these are concepts that like philosophers care a lot about, but I think other people like by default care about them too. So like the mm. idea that, I need to think that I'm free if I'm going to like expect that I'm going to be able to affect any change in my life or in the changes yeah. of others. Like when people tell you that like your actions are going to have no effect on the world, whether it's like in <clears throat> your friendships, your, your family, your political situation, 
there's only two ways to go from here. You're like, I can't do anything or like I can do something and that's going to like orient my actions in a certain way. So you have to kind of have this commitment to the idea that you are free in order to behave in a way that is freedom seeking, I mm-hmm. suppose. And then there's yeah. also like the, the thing about God, you know, like I talk about this actually with my dad all the time. Cause we're both sort we're both, we used to be religious and we're both very much in distress about whether, how, whether or not, cause we've never been able to commit to like atheism, either of us, but we're not no longer like doctrinaire in our religion. We talk all the time about like, when I think about death, there's something just like not possible for me to like accept about, about death, about there being no totality of the world, there being no God or whatever. And so there's a meaningful way in which like, I kind of have to think there's something there. And when I don't, I get extremely frightened and I just like, can't, it's like constitutive of my ability to like be in this world in a meaningful way for me to think about God or totality or indeed like meaning. So like Kant tells us that like, this is okay. Like this is actually how you, how reason, reason works. And like when people tell you that like, you know, just super skeptical people, you can't know anything. You're not free. You're determined. There is no God. Just accept, look at, look death in the face and accept it. Kant is like, this is actually very unreasonable to ask beings like us to do. And he's like, I'm going to figure out how to tell you that, um, how this, how this works and like what makes it sort of acceptable. Um, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. The language that he uses when he talks about this being like these being like regulative ideals or Mm -hmm. regulative principles, like he, he puts it in bold in a bunch of places. He's like, I mean, acting as if you thought this was right. Not that I think, not that I can prove it or know that it's true. And so like the one on freedom is really helpful here, right? Like the the two sides of the the antinomy are like either everything is mechanistically causally determined and it's sort of fatalistic. That's, that's That's the one side. And the other side is, well, no, some things happen through human freedom that like, you know, sometimes like human beings act freely and determine themselves to act in certain ways. And he's like, can I prove to you that I or you or anyone is free in this sense? No, I actually can't do that. But we act as if we're free. Like we can't do without the idea that we're free. Like that's something that like we need in order to make sense of ourselves and the world and for our practice to have meaning and for it to have a, a shape and a structure, a direction. So like he's he's not an atheist, right? Mm-hmm. Lillian, to, to go back to your like spirituality question, because he thinks that we can't be consistent atheists and we can't be consistent theists either. If by that we mean like I've proven that God does or does not exist. He's an agnostic about every one of these issues, right? But he thinks that there's like a, a, a practical function, a practical purpose to prefer some of these posits more than others, right? So I'm agnostic insofar as I can't prove to you that I'm free, but it's better if I act as if I'm a free being. Right. Because I'm now going to like have possibilities for like, you know, giving myself like a moral precepts or like relating to each other in like reasonable or just ways, which I can't do if I think that we're just, you know, like little billiard balls smashing into each other mechanistically. Well, the introduction says he wants to make room for faith. Right? The, the purpose of the book was to make room for faith, was to limit knowledge in order to make room for faith. Yeah. Again, again, Amazing. right. We're, we're, we're drawing a limit by already stepping past mm-hmm. it. I think I just think that's so lit. Like I'm just gonna take you people on, and I'm gonna like diagnose all of your questions, and I'm gonna make room for this little, little thing that happens to be the center of my universe. 
Yes. <laughs> in this 600 page. Funny yeah. how that works out, yeah. but yes, yeah. it is pretty cool. <laughs> but it, I, how much of this do you all think that this is, you know, also Kant struggling with um, the notion or the fact that we can't really know if progress is actually a real thing? If you know, right. uh, enlightenment is actually a true step forward for humanity, even like a long time ago in grad school, I, I read Kant uh, uh, witnessed the Lisbon earthquake, this natural disaster. And, you know, the struggle with that is you also need to come up with a coherent account that, you know, even that, even as something mm-hmm. as disastrous as that we must at least you know, posit that this is tending towards you know something that you know we obviously can't know the the whole reason behind it but something better you know that this is moving us forward that this isn't just you know, a random series of events with no coherence to them you know and i think the fascinating thing with kant is the thing is it may actually be the case that it is a random series of events that, you know, has no logical coherence or teleology to them. But it's as if he's saying, one, he prefers that we have this as if Mm -hmm. uh, of progress, but also reason can't completely just opt for actually that has no meaning. There is no meaning. You know, everything is just random. In the third critique, he actually calls out Spinoza. I basically think Spinoza is a psycho uh, because (laughs) because he's like because he says Spinoza is able to do what you just described. Like he is able to say, oh, yeah, this earthquake happened and it is totally meaningless. There's no redemption. Like there's no teleological redemption. There's no progress hiding in all of these catastrophes. Right. Like there's nothing. There's no uh, kind of happy ending that we can discern at the end of all this. And he says, listen, like human beings can't actually operate that that way. Like human reason cannot function that way. Only a total like a maniac like Spinoza could actually <laughs> do without teleology in that way. Spinoza wasn't human. Well, the funny thing about that moment, and it is in the third critique when he talks about Spinoza, is that like the thing that he can't he can't get that he that blows his mind about Spinoza is that like you said, like he sees this guy who's like, yeah, there ain't no such thing as teleology. The world's not things don't happen for a reason oh, yeah. in that sense of like having a purpose or a goal. And yet Spinoza was like a good dude. Yeah. Like you're telling well, me that this says. man like yeah. still like was like good to people yeah. and like he had like virtuous characteristics. Kant's like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. If he actually was a good person, <laughs> he must have believed in teleology somehow. Like even if he was lying. Or to he wasn't a good person. Right? <laughs> in, or yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Another yeah. antinomy. Like you argue for both there. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about the progress thing earlier today. Um, because there's this way in which part of the background in trying to understand dialectics better is like there's just many um, critiques of of the concept and like progress is one of those things. So like Mm -hmm. people have for some decades now been dunking on progress, both because there's this um, Eurocentric presumption of like the European um, experience, including the colonial experience, as being progress for the world. And this is you know, disillusioning for lots of reasons once you um, confront the contradictions in that kind of view of the world in a pretty obvious but also damning way for, like, a lot of these figures. On the other hand, I... So, like, that was the the critique of Kant that I was, like, cultured into in academia. Like, I've never read Mm -hmm. Kant without the post-colonial 
critique. Like mm. there is no pre post-colonial Kant in my experience of academia and philosophy mm. and Kant scholarship. And so like that seems sort of like that has always like made a lot of sense to me. On the other hand, this like practical argument he's making also continues to make sense to me. And like the way that in the past I was more easy, I think I'll put it this way. The reason I said the thing about there's no like pre post-colonial critique Kant in my mind is that that's actually my views on progress have maybe shifted slightly since I actually started thinking some progress could be possible in the world. Like throughout the neoliberal period, I was like, of course, progress is impossible. We're, we're like, we're like, you know, my entire life was just like taking L's. Like, I don't see the avenue for this. L's like, left and right. L's left and right. Things yeah. are getting worse. Um, you know, capitalism has immeasurably made the world a shittier place, except for like in a kind of ambiguous way. But, you know, there's just like this downhill side. So when like post-structuralists, you know, start making their critiques of this concept of progress, most notably like Foucault and his like breakdown of this kind of way of thinking about history. And then people appropriate Foucault and other figures too, like all over the world to kind of, you know, give the lie to the progress narrative. I just was like, definitely like that definitely makes sense to me because I just have never seen any progress in my fucking life. Like this is <laughs> trash all everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then again, like in the past five or six years, I started thinking, wait, I could, there could be a W like that we could win something. <laughs> things could get better. And when I start saying things could get better, I'm taught, I'm making a normative right. claim yeah. about things getting better. And I kind of have to think they can get better. And then what else am I to call that besides mm -hmm. progress? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's really a helpful one. And I like like reclaiming the concept of progress here from its critique, right? Because like, if you're a Kantian, you don't need to say that progress is actual. You don't you you mm. you don't need to say that like actually history mm. has been moving in a progressive direction and things have been getting better. You don't need to say that. What but when someone like, you know, develops a social critique or a critique of the existing order or like, you know, wants us to make things better, it, you're presupposing some idea of mm. progress as at least possible, right? You're you're critiquing things from the perspective of progress being something that could happen right mm -hmm. and and so like you know when the people who want to like jettison the concept of progress entirely are not being Kantian of course because mm -hmm. they think that like you know we could just get rid of this idea Kant thinks that like no you actually can't get rid of that idea not that like you are committed to it existing or not existing but it's a structuring condition for being able to even be critical about the world that we live in, that there's this idea that it could be better, mm -hmm. right? That's that's kind of a necessary idea. Well, like you could jettison it, but then you would shut up and you would never try anything. Do you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? like, you'd never do anything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. How are you critical of the existing world unless you think that it's possible for it to be better? You can't. You can't be. Okay, so... Okay, uh, I I feel like I'm about to you know play the 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 Lillian role. I, I just feel like we need to just throw some cold water uh, <laughs> on, on this a little bit. I like I'm down with all of this, but you know, um, my issues with Kant aren't quite resolved, and I know uh, I'll get myself into fire saying this, but the thing is, you know, Kant was a virulent racist. 
And Extremely I think you know, what what in you know in many ways you know, you could think of him, or it could be argued he is the father of modern racism, because Kant yeah. thought reason was universal, and then he actually started having limits on who participated in reason, and so I I could see this, and maybe I, we need to hold both things in, in in tandem. That you know Kant gives us this really rich understanding of what reason must uh, uh, suppose. This wasn't a, a genuine philosophical advance on the other side Kant's notion of progress would also legitimate what happened to people outside of Europe insofar mm -hmm. as you know either you could say well it was all in the end to the good or they weren't really you wouldn't suppose them as being a part of history he has this famous thing that he gets from David Hume you know I heard that there's a black guy in the Caribbean who spoke smartly but by his very skin I know he was stupid and so we, there are endless debates. When did Kant stop being racist? Apparently, of course, it's near the end of his life. But I also think, you know, for almost a more historical <laughs> form of reason, we need to be able to hold in tandem the fact that, you know, Kant is, you know, stance or this notion of universality. Kant also was a virulent racist whose ideas actually immeasurably had a worse impact on the world. Mm -hmm. And to mm -hmm. be okay with that, to know that we have to, like, Think both of those things, because I, I wonder if you know people worry about progress because they worry there are two things: worry that progress is a way of vindicating historically yes. variable acts, mm -hmm. and you know as a way of rendering them sure in that moment it's that seemed really fucked up, but if that didn't happen, we wouldn't have. And I'm going to be real with you: the amount of white people have told me, "Yes, yeah, slavery was bad, but you got out of Africa, and now you're uh, in America." That seems like a really <laughs> fucked up way of trying to like you know, use, use progress. Good fucking but god, yeah. On the other hand, they're not being Kantian because the point isn't to prove that you know you cannot prove that progress is like you know, uh, empirically there. He is simply trying to say it is what one must assume if they are going to make coherent sense of the world. And I think sometimes that gets really confused that mm. you know that fact that reason can't do without progress commits to people being like let me drop these graphs to actually show that colonialism was actually a really fucking sweet deal you know mm. um or something like that which is like you missed the boat you also you missed what Kant thought he was doing with enlightenment you mm -hmm. defender of the western philosophical tradition i think you don't really mean what you say so mm -hmm. i just wanted to like you know, put that out there because i think that's where the tension comes from I mean, it sounds like what you just said, and just tell me if I'm getting this wrong, that the critique of pure reason, there might, I mean, I'm not like a committed Kantian or anything. I'm kind of like, I like playing with Kant because I just feel like there's, I don't know why not. He's not going away. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> nope. I'm just kidding. But, um, it seems like there's, there might be some intuitions here that, are worth taking seriously. And then there's also a, a weird way in which like people have like commit and cause he does have an, like a racist anthropology that is compatible with these views. But people seem to think that like this like structure of human reason, like is that anthropology and that they need, and that this mm. strange need to like justify those contradictions in Kant becomes a way of justifying this particular political project in a way that yeah it's obviously quite mm. troubling yeah like one person might be helpful to compare it to is heidegger where like you know heidegger is very was very much a nazi and i also think his philosophy is very fascist right and so the question mm. would be and, it's, and you know it's 
to me, it's more obvious with Heidegger how those two things interlink. And the question might be with Kant, to what extent, and I don't know, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to know Kant really well and also, mm -hmm. you know, know the critiques of that anthropological, the, the racist elements of those anthropological presuppositions to do this kind of work. But to what extent is the, the epistemology or the metaphysics, to what extent is it compromised with, determined by, totally tied up in, that racist uh, anthropology, and I don't like have an answer. And to it that might both not be. I'm like I, no, completely no. Okay yeah. With it. yeah. I mean, I I I don't know because I I think I I don't know. I don't know Kant well enough to to answer that, or nor do I like know the the critiques of him well enough to answer it. But I do think that that's where that's what you'd have to do. Do you see what I mean? Like with Heidegger, to me, mm -hmm. it's really obvious, right? The the kind of pastoral fetish and. The relationship to you know the concept of destiny and all that like the, I can see the the fascism in some of the core concepts. The question would be like to what extent is that true of Kant? May I ask a, another question? You know, so if like you know what we've been working towards is that you know the Kantian dialectic allows us to uh, apprehend what reason cannot do without, and we've you know, you know we've talked. It seems like there is a um, you know a genuine of concern about even uh, the the notion of the philosophical notion of progress. You know, mm -hmm. it would it be possible for reason to have a notion of progress that doesn't also serve as a retroactive justification for what came before. You know, mm. by that, I mean, is there a way mm. of understanding that, you know, things can get better and be something else without having also in the back end that what led to this, you know, is, you know, um, not just causally significant, but, you know, um, almost uh, normatively uh, evaluated as, as um, reasonable and justified in that it allows this progress to happen. I, I actually feel like this comes back to his antinomies around, around freedom. Is it, you know, mm -hmm. um, a completely determined causal sequence or is there an un, a notion of an undetermined moment that initiates a new causal sequence perhaps? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is like going back to the, 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 the teleology question with like Kant and Spinoza. Like this is part of Spinoza's problem with teleology. Is that he he thinks that he thinks that it's like wrong first of all that like you know when we say that things happen for a reason we mean it in either of two senses either that like there was like a, a cause that made it happen like an efficient cause or that it's like you know it's working towards some end or some goal and that's the reason for it and the teleological is the second version which Spinoza's main problem with it I think is like Kant practical it's not that it's just wrong he thinks that it's like psychologically damaging to like buy into stories like that. When something unfortunate happens to you and like, you know, you suffer something and then someone comes along and says like, oh, actually like it was, actually it was to the good that that happened. It all happens for a reason. It's part of a plan. He thinks that that's like harmful to like try to like, you know, do these like contortions to like convince yourself of that sort of thing. Um, so then like, you know, holding these two things together, because I think you're right, at least part of the problem with the progress picture, which becomes clear throughout the 20th century is that, yeah, people use this concept to justify all kinds of evil shit that's happened, right? And that seems pretty messed up. But can we think about history having an intelligibility without something like progress would be Kant's question. And I think his answer is, as a presupposition, as an idea, we need that notion but that doesn't that shouldn't be used we shouldn't use that to justify 
like the atrocities that have come before. I mean, Hegel, right in the wake of this, is going to be like, yeah, like, you know, progress is actual and the actual is rational. And at the same breath, he looks back on history and goes, this is the slaughter bench. Yeah. Right. This is the slaughter bench of history. It's both of these things at once. Again, yeah. maybe. Can I a like bring it to like a smaller? Because I feel like when the conversation is about history in this big picture way, like there's this kind of obvious like set of really terrible things that one does not want to justify, and there like there there's a, a, a like a hard a hard stop normative stop to like this that conversation that constrains it unless you do want to justify it. Okay, so. But like he also the example that he gives that I gave before was about the human soul and like the personality. So he like in that like that footnote I mentioned before where he's like um, talking about how all of the preconditions of the human personality become the conditions for me to like reflect on the I and therefore to like propel myself into the future and like think about where I'm going and I have to kind of think about freedom as constitutive of that or else I can't I can't make that happen for myself and I'm wondering if like taking a smaller example of like a human person in that way would like help frame the issue because like I think I don't know like do I have to think that everything, all the shitty things that ever happened to me in my life were like necessary for me to be the person I am today and to like make my life better in the future. I, I don't actually think that. Like I, I think mm-hmm. shitty things happened. Um, they were constitutive who, have I, who I became, but I think shitty things didn't happen. I could have also been a person that is doing okay in, in the world and I could still assume my own freedom. So there's a way in which like, I'm not convinced that like the justification of like the prior shitty things in my life is needed for me to like make sense of my progression in the world. It could have been differently and it could have, in fact, it could have been better. I could be like even better as a person without (laughs) those shitty things. <laughs> I don't. Th- I don't know if that, I don't know so. if that's like help, helpful <laughs> at all. But I feel like when I think about it smaller like that, I have a little mm. less trouble like seeing my like personal history as being that yeah. loaded with retroactive justification for bad things. I might be getting a bit ahead of my skis, but you know, I I, I feel like I kind of had a, a a light bulb moment that I'm sure has been you know, discussed widely elsewhere, but, you know, bringing it to, you know, the personal level, it makes clear to me that even the notion of world history is itself a philosophically generated concept. You know, what I mean by that is, you know, when we're talking about world history, I guess one way you could talk about world history is history is just a set of facts that happened and, you know, we're not going to try to attach a narrative to what it all meant. But most historians, even when they write, they don't write, you know, I, I guess it's like, why would you write a book of history if you don't think that there's some meaning you're trying to generate for people mm. to understand why this happened? But when mm. you bring it down to the personal, uh, the personal level, you know, it, it seems as if you could, you know, say something like, you know, this philosophical concept of what I am. You could have a normative concept of, you know, but here's who I ought to be. And I think, you know, this is where, where Gil was going. You know, it is harmful when something awful happens to someone and you say, but look how tough it made you. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you know, you wouldn't have you know, been able to do X if you hadn't gone through that. And I think on some level we know that, especially if it's like right after an awful thing happened. Nancy Pelosi just did that. 
Oh my Did you God. see that thing uh, just about George oh Floyd, God. right? That fucking that so cringe insane. press conference where she said, uh, "What? Did, how did she put it again?" She said, "Well, it was all for." She said, "Thank you." George. She said, "Like oh, thank said, you for yeah, dying." Right. It was like the yeah. most fucked Thanked up thing I've heard in a long time. Thank you for making his sacrifice for thank social for justice. Sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Unhinged. Yeah, right? that kind of like took the breath out of me. That wasn't where I was going, but like, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I mean that. I think that is a you know even still at like the, the the interpersonal level that's where it seems like to me teleology can go really wrong where you claim mm-hmm. to empirically verify oh so there was mm-hmm. a meaning to this mm-hmm. but if it's if it's you know, on on the side of almost a descriptive account that i would not be who i was if those things did not happen i would be a different person if a different set of things happened then the notion is you're generating a unity of yourself. You are not simply just these random phenomena that, right. you know, I try to think about it as, you know, if I didn't have a concept of totality, I wouldn't be able to, like Gil, you were saying, just pick out little relations and and make them. I would just be overwhelmed. Just like, oh, yeah. that, that's random. That, uh, what? I wouldn't even be able to say that's random. I would just be and so yeah mm-hmm. per- personality <laughs> personality personality is that part of the what he calls the paralogisms of the soul where like i have a unity over time like all these different things happen to me and i am find myself in all these different contexts but it's still me that that what that thing that that actually there's a line he says in the paralogisms where he says like that i or he or it parentheses the thing that thinks which is like one of the most unhinged moments in the entire history of philosophy, but I kind of <laughs> love it. But it's this, you know, how do we like, we need to posit this idea that like, I'm, I'm still me. Like all of this different stuff happens, but I have this unity across all of the differences, across all of these like different sorts of experiences in time. And his point, I don't think in, in this context is to be like, you know, so I should look at the bad stuff that happened and be like, thanks, I'm glad for that. But rather that like, I can't even make sense of any of my experiences without presupposing that I'm a unified thing. I'm a unified subject of all of these experiences in some way. Right? You can't even say something like I've really changed without yeah. presupposing <laughs> some type of unity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. What has yeah. changed? Yeah. yeah. There would have to be some, some ground of stability that you're presupposing. And again, like I think it's important to say, you know, for our listeners, you know what? It may very well be the case. We are a random conglomeration of phenomena and events. And this is all an illusion that we are stitching together. But in reality, we are just, uh, what, like uh, impulses, uh, instincts, mechanisms. That might be true. but An aimless, purposive substance in the world. <laughs> there, there you go. Aimless, purposive substance in the world. Yikes. But even the <laughs> talk about us as ourselves as dynamic we're also presupposing a stasis and yeah. again you can make both arguments but it seems as if actually holding them in tension is what allows for any sort of coherence to be generated yeah and i think this is like a consistent sort of if we're, hopefully across these episodes we're able to like you know hone in on this concept of dialectics like better and better as we go along but this is i think one of its senses right this sort of this sort of dynamic unity of like something like that where these two contradictory things are there together like the unity of me over time and in my difference like you said or like in the dynamic change that there is an underlying stability like dialectics is seeing those things in each other like finding them in each other yeah and the early like 
I think the the most basic early insight of Kant with respect to dialectics is like don't stop at contradictions, right? Like don't you know thinking mm. reason doesn't stop at contradictions. It might have to stop speculatively, and obviously Hegel's going to have a problem with that. And you know the idea that we have to dissolve these you know we have to dissolve these contradictions at the speculative level and see how they're useful at the practical level. Like Hegel's going to want to say no, no, speculatively, let's keep going. Like there's there's more we can mm. actually don't stop. Can't yeah, stop, exactly. won't stop. Keep, Can't stop, won't keep stop. Keep pushing literally. those contradictions. But I think, like, I know, and again, maybe it's just a really basic way of, of relating to, to what's going on at this early kind of proto-dialectical understanding of dialectics, uh, which is that, like, contradictions are not the the end of, of thinking. They're not the end of the conversation, right, in, in philosophy, and in that, mm-hmm. that there's mm-hmm. a really important work that starts there where, where contradictions begin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to say uh, really, really quickly, and you know, it's because you know I've also just been having rattling in my brain what you know, Gil was saying that if you're doing critique, you must also be gesturing towards you know something else. And I tried to imagine what version of social critique could one do that stops at a contradiction. <laughs> that is just you know because it. it and, you know, but I, I want to be clear why I'm saying that because. Without the beginning from the, the 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 contradiction, it's unclear why you're making the critique in the first place. By critique, right, I mean right. saying this is wrong, this ought not to be. If you just stop yeah. the contradiction, you could just say, "I don't even know how you could say that's wrong." Actually, yeah, you could. <laughs> I, I, I just realized I tried to work that out. Yeah. So, like, mm. I think that I was just thinking about this in my own work recently because I've been wondering about people who are like liberals who like want to make liberalism like super radical and there's like a difference in the like tradition of critical theory between like internal critique like I'm going to look at liberalism and like see the way in which liberalism has failed to live up to its ideals and like Mm -hmm. radicalize it and like make it live up to its ideals like Mm -hmm. without contradiction and then there's like a different tradition that's the one that usually takes dialectics more seriously, which is like we're, we're going to confront and not avoid the contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and hope, and I'm, I think that that's like probably the, the difference between like thinking that if there is going to be a difference between thinking dialectically and not is like one set of people is going to both, they might notice the contradictions, but they're going to try to get rid of them or they're going to avoid them. And then the dialect, the people who are dialectical are going to try to hold them together in, in some formulation, some way, shape or, or form. I don't know if that's like a good way to, to, to show that the contradiction is necessary, you know, uh, depending on what, what, what your, your critique, if you want to show that actually there isn't a way of making this thing nice, your, your thing could be liberalism, your thing could be, uh, I don't know, colonialism, if you want to like try to go that route, if you can show that, no, 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 this is a constitutive contradiction that you will be forced to have to hold both in order for it to do the thing that it is doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what mm-hmm. you do from there could be really interesting, or you can give in to the illusion and mm. you know, you know, mm. pack it up and be like, well, no, 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 no. We're gonna, we're gonna not, you know, feel that tension. We're gonna claim we know how to resolve it. 
Right. This is why like one of, you know, the anno annoying Marxists favorite accusation is that someone or something is undialectical or one sided. Right. And like I was thinking about this in the, the, the way you were just unpacking it, Will, uh, referring back to our like episode on Landauer, where I um, I think that he was trying to do something like this in terms of the, side, the relationship between an individual and a community. There is actually something like a contradiction between it, the individual and the community of which it's a part. Like, and the one-sided version of either of these are like are bad, right? The the version that says like, no, the community is nothing; it's not real. They're just individuals, right? This is, I guess, like I don't know, our Margaret Thatcher, right? There's only individuals and families, or whatever. there is no such there thing as no a society. Yeah. No such thing as society, right? So that's ridiculous and one-sided or undialectical. But then the other side is also the other undialectical take is that individuals don't matter or they don't have any actual consistency. It's just the society. It's just the state. This is like, you know, our fascist integration, mm -hmm. right? Where like every, every, everyone's individuality gets dissolved into like the people mm -hmm. or whatever. And the dialectical move is to say those are both one half of a necessary contradiction where the key is to try to think about how there is this reciprocal relationship between individuals and the communities of which they're a part. Right? The communities don't exist outside of the individuals, but the individuals don't exist outside of the community. Mm -hmm. right? This sort of reciprocal relationship of like co-belonging. It's, it's both at once. Ooh, so you're saying yeah. neither Margaret Thatcher nor Mussolini are dialectical thinkers. <laughs> I thoroughly am on the record. <laughs> thoroughly undialectical thinkers. <laughs> I guess I'm actually kind of shocked to find out we're an anti-Margaret Thatcher pod. <laughs> I, I thought, you know, we were like, you know, really proud of what she did because without her, you know, one could argue we would have <laughs> never gotten Bernie Sanders. Oh my so, god. Hell yeah. You know, why don't y'all oh, progress, baby? Fix your mouth. Okay. That's gonna be With my new thing. Song. I'm gonna become like the best dialectical thinker out there, and I'm gonna tell everyone that neoliberalism <laughs> was excellent for you because it it set the stage for democratic socialism and that 50 year period. You're gonna, you're not gonna regret it, baby. You're not gonna, well, at least history won't regret it. You might not live to see it. I mean, <laughs> too bad, so sad. <laughs> All right, I think I that does that. it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for this particular series. We're gonna do Hegel, the big man of dialectics, and then Marx. And then um, we'll see where we'll go from there. Please like and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. If you like what we're doing, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash leftofphilosophy. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Bye, everyone. Take care. See you. Bye. Thank you.